On March 10, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted William Hurst, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University and currently a Radcliffe Institute Fellow, for a discussion entitled Ruling Before the Law, The Politics of Legal Regimes in China and Indonesia. The talk explored Hurst's 10 years of work exploring the rule of law and understanding the important dynamics of state-society relations, institutional development, social change, and legal politics across diverse contexts. The event was moderated by Tony Seish, Ash Center Director and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, uh, for coming uh, this afternoon. I know this is a difficult time of semester with spring break just coming up, and uh, half our students seem to be traveling to different parts of the world on different treks with this, that, and the other. But we're actually very uh, lucky that this year, uh, Bill Hurst is spending the year at the Radcliffe uh, Institute. As I'm sure many of you know, Bill is an associate professor of uh, political science in uh, Northwestern uh, University. I was just saying to Bill, this is actually the work I know him from, which was his earlier work about uh, <coughs> uh, Chinese workers, how the situations had changed, the way reforms impacted on them. It's a very complete uh, with a huge array of interviews uh, in that, putting together uh, the work about <coughs> how reforms had impacted on the working class, particularly as it was deconstructed uh, the latter part of the 1990s. But what Bill is going to talk about today, and I have no idea what this is about, but is a new topic. <laughs> but where it's great for us uh, here at the Ash Center is that, as you know, we have uh, major programs uh, related to uh, China, but also uh, Indonesia. And those come under our heading of uh, challenges to democracy in hard places. And I guess there's nothing harder in those places than how you think about uh, constructing uh, a legal regime. And uh, Bill will be looking at the politics of that. As we know, in China, at the fourth plenum, uh, was supposedly the rule of law uh, plenum. And it seems to me what we finished up with there is, I don't know whether you can call them legal systems, but two different sets uh, of uh, dealing with legal issues, one of which really was the focus uh, of the fourth plenum, which deals more with the state's interaction with citizens and is based around the issues of commercial law, criminal law, and so on. But also what we've seen very strongly under Xi Jinping is a certain sect of legal activities which runs through the party with the Zhang Fa Wei and the Zhong Ji Wei and the Shuang Wei and all those kinds of processes uh, for dealing within the party which is considerably less uh, transparent than what the uh, fourth plenum uh, was talking about. But anyway, you're not here to listen to me rattling on, but please, uh, Bill. Great. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. Let me make sure I can use this effectively. There we go. Um, so this is a project that's been sort of in gestation for a very long time, uh, for about 11 years now. I've been working on this project to try to compare uh, legal systems uh, and the politics of legal institutions across Indonesia and China from 1949 to the present. Um, and so a lot of the work is actually kind of historical uh, more than it is contemporary. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't have anything in the talk, although there's half a chapter in the book, uh, about criminal law in the post-reform period. Um, so I'm happy to talk about that in the question and answer, but I won't be getting too much into things like Zhang Fa Wei or, uh, or uh, Ji Jianwei. 
uh, or these other kind of extra legal criminal investigation uh, arms. But that is a major part of one chapter in the book. So uh, let me just start instead of, of, of going, doing some introductory remarks, which, which I might otherwise do, because I, I know we don't have a ton of time. So the sum total of justice in this country amounts to nil, proclaimed the head of a rural district court in Indonesia in 2014. <laughs> arguing that formal rules and structures were of little utility in promoting anything like what could be called a rule of law. Fourteen years earlier, an eminent Chinese legal scholar uh, and former dean of the law school at Beijing University uh, famously dismissed both teleological notions of China's quote-unquote progress towards a Western-defined rule of law, as well as any notion that rural Chinese citizens understood or even cared much about formal laws or judicial processes. Both of these close observers offer reasoned and powerful insider critiques of prevailing conventional wisdom that as formal legal knowledge and practice spread throughout their populations, diverse states' legal norms and structures probably converge towards some common standard of what we could call a rule of law. But both of these critiques also remain trapped, I would argue, by a normative and ideotypical ultimately Western or Anglo-American rule of law concept, one that occludes other forms of systematic legal knowledge or practice. Uh, by getting away from this simplistic or relatively simplistic conceptualization to think about how law actually works in citizens' lives and in society at the grassroots, we can see, in fact, that farmers, workers, and small business people are often very well informed, even deviously savvy, in their use of formal law and legal structures. But more important than this, legal institutions promote and protect specific political and social relationships, often very different ones from those assumed to underpin a rule of law, though no less systematic, even as they themselves, these relationships that is, and the institutions that support them, are founded upon the basis of political decisions and existing power relations. Um, so, Rule of law is a concept that is much debated in modern social science and, in fact, has been throughout history, ever since Aristotle criticized his teacher's illiberal view of states and legality uh, back in the 4th century BC in his criticism of Plato. Um, but perhaps the most parsimonious and clear definition that we can get to of a rule of law is of a system in which all agencies and officials are subject to a principle of what could be called legality, or at least that the rules that they themselves make um, are binding upon those who make them, uh, and a system in which citizens are able to know and to test this principle and officials' adherence to it. Now, of course, neither China nor Indonesia meets such a standard in any straightforward way at any time since 1949. Perhaps other countries don't either, in fact, but at least these two do not. Um, if we allow, though, for a less teleological or normative concept, we can get much more mileage for the analysis of how law rules and is ruled, rather than simply measuring all systems against an explicit or implicit standard template. Now, I suggest a new conceptual framework, one that I call legal regimes, that differs from dominant ideas about the rule of law, yet nevertheless specifies principles around which different legal orders are organized in authoritarian and developing country contexts. 
So legal regimes are shaped by the interaction of social groups and individuals within the state, and then by the interaction of states with legal institutions. Specifically, I argue that there are two basic dimensions of legal regimes. First, how open or changeable is the polity? That is the constellation of politically empowered and so, uh, social actors. Second, the degree and manner of intervention into the, state, into the legal system's handling of specific cases by other state institutions or political actors. So based on just these two dimensions then, which are relatively easy to measure and not directly part of the outcomes that we want to study, we can build a basic typology of legal regimes as outlined in this figure. I'm sorry, you can't see the bottom. It says legal institutions as vehicles or expressions of politics not formally rational. So where the polity is pluralistic, open, or contested, sometimes violently, and other parts of the state do not interfere in the work of legal institutions, meaning that their work in Weberian terms is formally rational, if not always substantively rational, we can observe something akin to what is often assumed in the classical rule of law paradigm. In such legal regimes, courts and other legal actors are independent, citizens have access uh, and influence on the political system, and the gap between social and legal norms is not very large. Now, this is the order that many scholars seem to assume exists in well-functioning democracies with powerful and independent legal systems that apply the law consistently and without bias for all those who seek justice. Whether or not it really exists, even in places like the UK or US, is of course debatable. Now where the polity is open or in flux, often locked in high-stakes struggles for power, but there is heavy interference in individual cases by other state institutions, that is, the adjudication process lacks formal rationality, we see what I call mobilizational or charismatic legal regimes. Here, powerful new players coming into the fore in the political arena use the state institutions as tools to refashion legal systems to support new orders of power or social relations. If a single actor dominates, such a legal regime can border on the charismatic. If multiple actors contend over protracted periods, these regimes can be quite violent and incredibly unstable. Such regimes are common in countries undergoing extreme political change or that have recently undergone such change and have yet to establish more regularized structures of post-revolutionary power and authority. Now, where the polity is closed and fixed, but legal institutions handle cases relatively free from interference, legal regimes promote a formally rational yet politically exclusionary rule by law order. Legal institutions are relatively independent, consistent, and legitimate, yet their work at root supports entrenched political and social hierarchies and relationships. Such regimes are common in what we could call developmentalist states, where conservative authoritarian rulers prioritize the predictability of transactions and the lowering of costs, but not open access to the polity. They also help to bolster the legitimacy of unelected or otherwise non-validated political elites in many cases. Finally, then, where we see closed polities and widespread interference in specific cases by non-legal actors, neo-traditional legal regimes dominate. In such regimes, established conservative hierarchies actively use their political power to ensure that the legal system reinforces their position in wider social and political realms. Such orders are common in colonial and many post-colonial states, as well as in some authoritarian countries with established structures of power that are far removed from any revolutionary upheaval. 
They help to maintain the positions of those in power, but they do not improve the state's legitimacy or particularly facilitate most types of economic development. So if we look at the two cases that I'm most interested in, in China we see a mobilizational uh, legal regime in the criminal law arena during most of the Maoist era. A rule by law regime in the civil arena since the 1980s and a neo-traditional regime in the criminal arena since about 1979. In Indonesia we see what can be characterized as a neo-traditional regime in both civil and criminal law during most of the liberal democracy period uh, during the Early, 19, early and mid-1950s, at least up through the 1955 elections. We then see what I would characterize as a mobilizational regime starting around 1955, certainly by July of 1959, uh, up until 1971, uh, but this one in the civil law arena primarily, unlike the Chinese counterpart, which is almost exclusively criminal. Um, from 1971 through to the fall of New Order in 1998, uh, we see a neo-traditional regime in both civil and criminal law arenas, while the main effect then of reformasi in the legal realm has been to shift the criminal system to a rule-by-law regime, even as the civil law system retains its mostly neo-traditional character. So to examine this and to get at some of the nuances of legal regimes in China and Indonesia, I undertook some significant new empirical research over the last decade, beyond what has been previously attempted in either country. Now specifically, I spent more than 18 months in each country collecting data from both urban and rural areas. Uh, and th these data have come in the form of government documents, gazetteers, case files, court decisions, case registers, direct observations and interviews with judges, lawyers and officials. In order, uh, as well as some parties to cases who were none of those uh, special categories. So in order to capture the range of regional variation, I worked in both Sichuan and Jiangxi provinces, primarily in China, uh, and in, in Indonesia, my primary sites were East Java and North Sulawesi provinces. Uh, supplementing then also these main fieldwork sites with somewhat less detailed work in Jakarta, Central Java, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangdong, and Shandong provinces. I'd be happy to discuss further the rationale for selecting these localities in more detail after the talk. Uh, as motivating questions then, I ask first what sorts of legal regimes can be found each in Indonesia and China and what uh, these might mean for the way that courts and legal institutions actually dispose of individual criminal and civil cases. Simply categorizing these national level cases is a major step forward and contributes much to, how, to our understanding of how citizens and social groups interact with states. But beyond this, I also seek to parse uh, the varieties of more micro-level state-society relations under different types of legal regimes in the context of criminal prosecution and social control versus civil litigation's emphasis on dispute resolution. Uh, and finally, I examine the dynamics of institutions and adjudication specific to what I think are the distinct settings in both urban and rural areas, uh, which impose somewhat different structural constraints on how courts and other institutions function. So what I want to do in the rest of the talk is talk just a little bit about some of the findings from a couple of the cells uh, on that earlier two by two. So let's look uh, now at just a small segment of some of my data from China. Uh, this part on the operation of criminal law in rural areas during the 1950s and 60s, uh, which I would characterize as a clear case of a mobilizational legal regime into the 1970s as well, actually. 
Now, to get at the microdynamics of this system, alongside dozens of gazetteers and documents from around the country, the main set of, of data that I examine uh, is what is actually the most complete archive of investigation and case files that's ever been amassed from a local Chinese Public Security Bureau, or PSB. Uh, this is from a place that I've labeled as County P, uh, which is a rural area uh, in the northern part of Jiangxi province which according to quantitative and other indicators uh, is broadly representative of that geographic region. Uh, these files represent a critical new set of data that help to complement previously unexamined gazetteers and government documents to help us understand the specific issues and processes at work in rural courts during this period. Now, in marked contrast to the findings of most prior scholarship, which has been based pretty much exclusively in urban areas and mostly also based on broad secondary sources, I find that in rural areas, the judicial apparatus actually pursued remarkably consistent uh, agendas of institutionalization and regularization under what was still a revolutionary legal regime uh, based on a highly contested polity and frequent and deep interference into specific cases by non-judicial government actors. So if we look at some examples of cases during land reform, uh, many of the cases in the first few years after 1949 related to landlords, quote-unquote bandits, counter-revolutionaries, uh, and individuals alleged to have collaborated closely with the KMT, the Kuomintang, uh, or even to have continued serving as covert KMT agents after liberation. Uh, by the end of 1952, uh, there's some progress towards greater institutionalization, but many of these issues still remained, such as frequent interference from non-judicial actors in, the sent in sentencing of, of con convicted criminals, uh, and the unclear as well as not well-regulated uh, role in many aspects of cases uh, for state and party administrative agencies. So in one case from 1950, uh, the defendant stood accused of assisting the Nationalist Army during the Civil War and acting as a KMT spy later. There was testimony from several witnesses and the presentation of several maps of the area showing how troops had benefited from the intelligence he had provided. This case is especially interesting because it was first handled by a special agency that was devoted specifically to the discipline of public servants rather than by any judicial organ. And all of this is recorded in the Public Security Bureau's file. This administrative agency then sentenced the defendant to three years in prison, followed by one year of labor on September 4, 1950. Many other actors in the political system thought that this punishment was too light, however, and they sent directives, which are copied in the file, uh, to the County P People's Tribunal, uh, as well as to the Public Security Bureau, calling on them to make sure that he was punished more severely. The Provincial Department of Public Security even sent a notice to the County Public Security Bureau demanding that it look into the case carefully and emphasized uh, that the case against the defendant, which it termed a KMT special, a, whom it termed a KMT special agent uh, and a quote-unquote despicable person, was very, very strong indeed. Sure enough, after gathering additional evidence, including a letter from the relevant township party secretary denouncing his character, the tribunal issued a decision document in January of 1951 convicting him and sentencing him to be stripped of all of his political rights and immediately executed, which he was two weeks later. So that's kind of broadly representative of the land reform era cases, which I'd be happy to talk about in more detail later. But if we look now at sort of the first five-year plan period cases in this county, um, some trials actually didn't yet switch over, uh, had not yet switched over to the new people's court that opened there in 1952, in advance of the 1954 law, uh, organic law and people's courts actually. 
um, and the mass tribunal uh, or people's tribunal and the quote-unquote mass adjudication right, or gongshen, uh, system remained in effect for many political cases. Most cases, though, actually had switched over to the court's formal judicial process uh, by pretty early in the first five-year plan. So in one case, a 45-year-old farmer was sentenced to five years in prison uh, in December of 1957 uh, after having been a member uh, of the KMT paramilitary group, uh, or of a KMT paramilitary group, uh, before 1949 and then for cursing, uh, sorry, not 1957, 1953 he was sentenced, uh, for cursing CCP cadres later, calling them, quote-unquote, worse than bandits after liberation. In 1956, he then also allegedly proclaimed repeatedly that the KMT was about to return from Taiwan, even shouting when he saw an airplane in the sky that the invasion must already have begun. Now, he was transferred then from prison to a labor reform camp in June of 1958 uh, and was then repeatedly denounced by other inmates who informed on him, and all of these denunciations are in his public security file, of course, uh, informed on him for his criticism of the Great Leap Forward, for his saying that he did not trust reports of higher grain production, either in his county or further afield, for commenting on the attractiveness of women he saw in the labor camp working in the fields, uh, and for shouting angrily while at work, quote, what kind of people's livelihood is this? We are hungry all day, uh, all the way through until the evening. And more than 40 other inmate informers then even testified also to his overeating, stealing food, and complaining about shortages during the middle of the Great Leap Forward. So there were, of course, there many more straightforward cases involving ordinary offenses. In one of these, three people preparing moonshine liquor got into an argument. During the argument, one of them hit the others, causing injury, and he was convicted of intentional injury and sentenced to two months in prison, which he served very easily. Uh, very sort of open and shut case. Similarly, a 29-year-old farmer was convicted and sentenced in a different case for stealing fertilizer from a public management department and then absconding uh, with it by boat. Uh, later to be caught downriver. So all of these are kind of what we can see happening in the county during the first five-year plan. What about the Great Leap Forward? Although the Great Leap Forward was in fact the period of greatest politicization of justice in rural China, uh, we can still see many cases, uh, oh, even while many cases were politicized and there's a definite surge in prosecutions for political offenses, we can still see many ordinary cases becoming even more regularized in their adjudication. Also, many of the political cases from this period actually revolved around issues from before 1949. That's something that's not usually noted in the Gazetteers. In fact, it isn't noted in the Gazetteers very clearly, and I haven't really seen much mention of that in most previous research. Remarkably, many of the most obvious political cases uh, were handled according to the most scrupulous procedures, even at the height of the Great Leap Forward. Now, for example, in a political case with elements from after 1949, though, uh, a 46-year-old rich peasant was convicted of defrauding two brothers uh, who had received the defendant's old house during land reform uh, in order to reacquire the property in 1957. For this, he was sentenced initially to seven years of labor reform, which the court quickly reversed or revised uh, a few months later, up to nine years uh, because of his supposed lack of remorse. Uh, all handled with, with very clear documents and very nicely written up decisions with all the proper testimony, with the proper prosecution, uh, by the procurator rather than by some other uh, amorphous agency. Uh, so in 1962, a 27-year-old farmer was then sentenced to nearly four years of labor reform for stealing grain and ration tickets and then selling them. 
Um, this case also appears to be one of the only political prosecutions from this period without any connections uh, to the pre-49 era. So if we look then at, I'm not really going to look at the cases from sort of 63 to 65 because I don't have time, uh, but most of the cases I was able to sample in that period were not processed through courts at all, at least in County P. Rather, they were handled through administrative detention, or lao jiao, lao dong jiao yang. Uh, and therefore, they're discussed separately in another part of the chapter that I have on this. But still, there are some rather interesting cases involving ordinary offenses, which I can't really get into. But they generally support this overall trend towards regularization and routinization, including formal prosecutions by the procurator in almost all cases, and more careful application of statutes and court decision documents, including citing the relevant paragraphs of statutes uh, when writing up decisions, rather than just going on about the despicable character or counter-revolutionary nature of the defendant. So if we look at cases then from the Cultural Revolution, almost no scholarship has really been done on the Cultural Revolution era in Chinese law. And there is a tendency among many scholars, even today, to write off the entire decade from 1966 to 1976 as completely lawless and chaotic. Now, while it is notable that revolutionary committees did assume at least de jure control over court functions after 1967, in many, many places, most places, uh, and party committees, uh, along with specially constituted small groups, took up much of the work of investigation and evidence gathering, especially in more, more overtly political cases, the basic criminal process was not upended by the Cultural Revolution, at least in County P, and in fact nowhere else for which I can find any evidence. Some ordinary cases from this period, though, were at least somewhat influenced by extraordinary political conditions. For example, a 28-year-old poor peasant sent to work in a state-owned factory as part of the Third Front Project stole supplies on various occasions, including lamps, sheets, glass, oil, electrical machines, door handles, batteries, umbrellas, uh, even bedpans from the workers' clinic, and fire hoses and extinguishers from the workers' dormitory. And he supposedly sent all of these goods back to his family in County P. He was arrested, prosecuted, convicted of stealing and, and put in jail, but it, the fact that he was there in the Third Front Project and the fact that the uh, goods were stolen in this way is, of course, related to the political conditions of the time. There are also some almost stereotypical uh, or stereotypically political cases, and a particularly interesting or egregious one of these, three members of one family, all in their 20s, whom I'll call Brother One, Brother Two, and Brother One's wife, uh, were prosecuted both for being of bad class background and for allegedly making political statements and errors during the Cultural Revolution. In 1969, they were prosecuted. Um, their recent transgressions at the time, including making negative remarks about having to hang a portrait of Mao in the doorway of their house, which they derided as formalism, uh, making fun of other leaders that were pictured with Mao in public posters, saying they looked like toadies, resisting using Mao's words in their performances, their job after all was as members of a Maoist cultural troupe, um, listening to prohibited radio broadcasts in, from Taiwan and the Soviet Union, making fun of people spontaneously shouting in the street, 10,000 years to Chairman Mao, by saying that no one could possibly live that long, and in fact, if you made it to 100, you were doing pretty good. Um, Finally, they insinuated in public that the real reason for Liu Shaoqi's downfall had been his wife's illicit relationship with Jiang Qing. Um, all of these three were sentenced to mass supervision uh, through labor, and the decision over whether or not to place what the court called counter-revolutionary hats on their heads uh, was left to the masses in their commune. Now, such obvious, highly political cases are not the only ones processed through the judicial system, nor are they unique to the Cultural Revolution period. 
In fact, the criminal apparatus in rural China became increasingly predictable and regularized, even as extrajudicial interference and intense political contestation continued to reign supreme in the overall context of a revolutionary legal regime. Of course, some cases were also uh, re-adjudicated many times, with different results according to shifting political climates, as I've sort of hinted at, but I think there's a good vivid example actually that I found from Gansu, actually from uh, Tianshui City in Gansu, uh, in which a farmer could trace his evolving fate very, very clearly through these different twists and turns of legal system development. Uh, Mr. Zhang, uh, then 27 years old, was convicted in 1958 of wrecking the management of the planned economy and sentenced to 10 years in prison. His crime had been to sell cabbages, turnips, bean sprouts, sweet potatoes, and other vegetables, as well as some cold noodles and tofu, uh, all of which were in extremely short supply in 1958 in Gansu uh, at various places on the outskirts of town. Later, in August of 1962, his case was reevaluated by the court, and his conviction was allowed to stand, but it was determined that he should be released early from prison. Finally, in 1987, the court took up his case yet again, this time ruling that he never should have been convicted of any crime and exonerating his record. A little too late, though. Uh, 20, 30 years later, almost. Um, so that's sort of one window onto what mobilizational regimes can look like in China. What I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about sort of rule-by-law regimes that have developed uh, in civil litigation arena more recently in China, and then talk a little bit about some of the evidence from Indonesia as well. So if we look at uh, China's rule by law regime in civil litigation since the 1980s, um, my observations of trials and in-depth interviews with judges uh, from across rural and urban areas of Sichuan in, 1980, in, sorry, in 2006 uh, provide some particularly illuminating data that I can also wrap up quickly. Uh, in one case, uh, which I observed at trial in a rural district court in Meishan in southern Sichuan in April of 2006, uh, which was presided over by a panel of three young judges, a woman who had lost her hand and sustained other injuries in an automobile accident sued her husband's employer, for whom he was driving at the time the accident occurred. The plaintiff's husband was a truck driver whose employer had dispatched him in the summer of 2005 to deliver a truckload of ice cream to Chongqing, then pick up some other products there and return with these uh, back to the county, uh, back to the county uh, in Meishan where, where he lived. So the company did not suggest or provide a relief driver, although it was a very long journey over mountainous terrain. The driver's wife, who then became the plaintiff, decided to accompany him as a passenger in part to help keep him awake. On the trip home, uh, just after passing the Fuling toll station on the border between Chongqing municipality and Sichuan province, uh, they got into a very serious accident in which the plaintiff had lost her hand and sustained other severe injuries. The police investigation of the accident concluded that it was caused by her husband being a quote-unquote exhausted driver, a pilaojiashi. Uh, it was also revealed that he had failed to take any breaks at all or to rest during the previous segments of the journey, despite company policy and legal regulations requiring him to do so. In the end, the court assigned 10% responsibility to the woman herself for choosing to travel as a passenger on her husband's work assignment in violation of company rules, uh, as well as safety regulations. 45% responsibility to the company for failing to, uh, sorry, yes, 45% responsibility to the company for failing to provide a relief driver on such a long trip, and 45% responsibility to the plaintiff's husband for failing to take the breaks that he knew he was supposed to take. 
Since the company was not seeking any damages, i.e. to recover the cost of damage to the truck, the decision resulted in the plaintiff receiving more than 500,000 RMB from her husband's employer in damages to cover her medical bills uh, and as compensation for emotional distress and pretty significant physical disability. The verdict was pretty routine, but the process through which it was reached, I think, was illuminating. Now, I had the opportunity to interview all three judges at some length almost immediately after they issued their decision, and they explained that their deliberations had been very difficult and at times contentious. The letter of the law was vague, at least as they saw it, as to exactly what risks one assumes when hitchhiking or traveling as a non-paying passenger in a truck. At least one of the judges thus felt initially that perhaps the plaintiff should bear more than a 10% responsibility for the accident. At least one other judge also thought at the outset that the driver was more than 45% responsible since he had caused the accident through his driving errors and his decision not to rest, uh, even though he knew all the rules very well. In the end, the decision was a compromise reached explicitly with the intent of protecting what the judges referred to as a weak social element, in this case the plaintiff who had lost her hand, and the general spirit of what they regarded as fairness as much as in response to the letter of the law. The judges all claimed also that they felt no pressure from the adjudication committee within the court, the court president, or the CCP Political and Legal Affairs Committee or any other government agency. But their reasoning and the compromise that they reached suggests that they did at least prioritize some sense of social equity and social stability in some ways over strict legal reasoning. So I'm going to stop there in terms of talking about China, talk just a little bit about Indonesia um, and a couple of cells in the table for Indonesia, mainly in mobilizational and neo-traditional uh, legal regimes in the realm of civil litigation in Indonesia. So the Indonesian criminal apparatus did not actually function very substantially during the period of guided democracy or during the early days of new order. Between basically Sukarno's assertion of charismatic authority uh, or attempted assertion of charismatic authority in July of 1959 and Suharto's consolidation of his new military regime by the early to mid-1970s. But the civil litigation actually thrived, a civil litigation system actually thrived during this period almost to the point of spinning out of control. Now of my rural fieldwork sites, the most complete records of case files for this period that I was able to obtain are actually from Pamakasan uh, on the eastern end of the island of Madura in East Java province. And there were a great many suits there over land as well as over inheritance and divorce and some over what could be considered more mundane matters. Now, If we look at some of the early guided democracy land tenure suits, we can see the influence of changing political conditions as well as evident weakness and indecision of the court at key moments. So in one case from 1959, for example, a man sued another man uh, claiming that he'd illegally occupied his house and made use of 25 trees that were on his land uh, and taken other valuables from him since 1954. The defendant, in turn, produced testimony and affidavits, uh, though no original formal documentation, to support his claim that he'd purchased the land, the house, and its contents from others uh, who had held formal title, that is a registration uh, from the old colonial registration system, in separate transactions in 1932 and again in 1952. In this case of one person's word against that of others, the court finally gave up and just dismissed the suit and charged the plaintiff 41 rupiah in court costs. Now, in a more complex case that lasted almost right up through until the Gestapo coup, 
uh, and in, uh, actually until the end of 1965, uh, a plaintiff sued uh, claiming that he had purchased a parcel of land in 1941 from the father of a woman, who is defendant one in this case, uh, who had herself recently been involved in other litigation over title to the same land. The plaintiff claimed that although he purchased the land in 1941, he did not register it under his name until 1948 because the Japanese occupation and subsequent war of independence had disrupted such quotidian bureaucratic services as land registrations. Meanwhile, another man, defendant two uh, in this case, claimed that he had purchased the same parcel of land from defendant one's father in 1920. So he knew that the plaintiff had been occupying the land since 1942, but he was somehow able to get it registered in his name in 1952. Now, there were thus duplicate registration certificates issued to different people, apparently, one in 1948, the other in 1952, for the same parcel of land. Defendant one, however, was able to get the court uh, to issue an order in 1963 declaring that the parcel of land was vacant, uh, as defined by the agrarian law of 1960, uh, and should belong to her, after she won a civil suit over its title against defendant two. The plaintiff's 1964 suit then, seeking to vacate the claims of both the defendants and grant the title for the land back to him, was dismissed by the Pamukkasan court on March 17, 1965, leading him to appeal to the provincial high court in Surabaya. That court concurred uh, with the local lower level court and upheld the original ruling in a decision issued in August of 65. Then we get to see some other kind of backlash suits over land reform or incipient land reform uh, from the early 60s that start to be filed after 1965. Uh, and in these the court came to be more predictably uh, came more predictably to rule in favor of those seeking to restore or enforce older claims to land rights and land tenure. So in one such case uh, also from Pamukkasan, uh, the plaintiff claimed that a parcel of land was his rightful inheritance from his mother, who had died during the Second World War. The testimony of many witnesses, including the village chief, confirmed that the plaintiff's mother had indeed owned the land uh, since Dutch colonial times. She then leased the land to a sharecropper, who eventually was to become the defendant in this case, during the Japanese occupation. After she died, the mother, not the sharecropper, uh, the land was eventually registered under her son's name in 1951. The defendant claimed, however, to have legal rights to the land under the agrarian law of 1960 because he had worked and lived on it for more than 20 years and the plaintiff had not, at least until recent times, sought to enforce the old sharecropping arrangement. The court ruled for the plaintiff and ordered the defendant to vacate the land immediately and turn it over to the plaintiff on December, 6, 19, uh, December 1, 1966. Now, upon appeal, the High Court in Surabaya upheld the lower court decision in 1967, but for different reasons, saying in this case that it had no jurisdiction to decide what amounted to a land reform case under Law 109 of 1964 and Special Courts of Land Reform and dismissing the suit while advising the losing party to seek redress through the central level Special Court for Land Reform, then still in effect, in Jakarta. The pendulum had swung in a more right-wing direction. Indeed, the inscription at the very top of every decision document uh, starting in about 1967 changed. Right? It used to say, in the name of justice, right? and then it was changed to, for the sake of justice rooted in God the Almighty. Right? Why? Pretty obviously because religion is being inserted as a justifying force all of a sudden over more abstract or secular notions of justice. 
even though the legal system uh, was more timid than ever in terms of actually asserting its jurisdiction or authority despite its claim of divine right. So the court also became more resistant uh, to claims against alleged illegal occupation of land by local elites, provided uh, that they had been reasonably long-standing. Uh, so in one such case, also in Madura, a plaintiff claimed that another man had illegally occupied land that was rightfully his during the Japanese occupation. The village chief, in office since at least 1942, testified in support of the defendant's claim to ownership. The land was apparently never registered formally and no certificate of title was presented. And so then the court accepted the defendant's evidence rather than the plaintiff's more populist assertions and dismissed the suit in November of 1966. Not satisfied, the plaintiff appealed to the High Court in Surabaya, which took a year to dismiss the case in late 1967. Backlash land reform cases also proliferated outside of Java as well. The Tondano Court, with jurisdiction over the Minahasa Regency and the highlands of North Sulawesi, for example, saw many such suits after the coup and before 1971. Uh, in one such suit, uh, a man sued for the return of plantation land in Tomohon uh, that he claimed was rightfully his before it was seized by the Japanese. During the war, he claimed, the Japanese military had planted the land with high-quality coffee, further increasing its value. Another, apparently poorer villager then, assumed occupancy and control over the land when the Japanese left in 1945 and had been refusing to relinquish it. After the suit was filed, a case examination team was constituted by the village, and they spent two days in February of 1968 surveying the land, recording exactly what was planted on every square meter of it, and interviewing the district head, the Ketua Kachamatan. And they were, they were not able, though, to come to any definitive de determination about who held formal title to the land or exactly what had happened to it between 1942 and 1945, somehow. No one could remember those, those three years, uh, 20 years later in this village. And the court appeared to deem the evidence sufficient, though, to rule for the plaintiff, even though the decision document is missing from the file in its original form. But the court does not seem to have been able or willing to enforce its decision, because even much later still, in 1982, the same plaintiff sued again for enforcement of the decision from the original 1968 case. So he tried through various means to get it enforced eventually, much, much later has to come back. So in another example from Tondano, uh, a man sued several of his relatives for occupying land planted with wet field rice uh, that he claimed his parents had willed to him before their deaths. His relatives, in this case the defendants, argued that the land had been sold, given, or deeded to them in a series of transactions in 1955, 1957, and 1962, producing documents to bolster all of these assertions. The plaintiff, however, was able to point to a Dutch land registry from 1914, showing that the land had in fact belonged to his grandparents, and then he also had documentary evidence of its transfer to his parents and then to him. The Tondano court ruled very quickly in his favor and issued a decision in June of 1968, ordering his relatives to vacate the land and relinquish title to him. That was when the real political wrangling began. The defendants appealed to the High Court in Manado in early 1969, uh, but that court did not issue a decision back to the parties until 1978, apparently sitting on the politically sensitive, though reasonably straightforward case for a decade. That appellate decision upheld the initial Tondano ruling, or the original Tondano ruling, uh, but there were still several more problems with its enforcement. Finally, in 1986, the plaintiff's daughter, his heir because he had died in 1981, petitioned the Tondano court 
uh, for enforcement of the 1968 decision, but then the file runs dry. So it's not clear if it actually ever was enforced. So if we move back to East Java for another interesting example, in 2001 case from rural Kadiri, uh, this case has its roots in the turbulent 1960s as well. Six elderly farmers sued their former village chief and district head, uh, the Ministry of Health, and three other farmers. The plaintiffs asserted that some land which had belonged to them had been unlawfully occupied by the other two farmers, ancestors of these two defendants, in 1960 and 1961. To back up their claims of ownership, the plaintiffs submitted handwritten and worn registrations and sale documents from 1954 and 1956 that were actually pretty hard to read and not clear if they were even real. But they showed that their families had possession of this land in question. So after occupying the land, then the other two farmers sold it illegally, the plaintiffs claimed, to the village chief in December of 1963, who received financial assistance for the purchase from the district head. At trial, the defense submitted a formal bill of sale from the 1963 transaction, as well as registration documents and land dispute adjudication decisions from 1967 and 1968 to show that it actually was owned and occupied by the village chief. The two farmers who'd occupied the land in 1960 and 61 died suddenly and mysteriously uh, in 1965 and, and 1966. Uh, the file just says they died during the time of Gestapo without any further elaboration. Very likely it would seem they were murdered or quote-unquote disappeared, perhaps as suspected leftists or sympathizers of the Indonesian Communist Party. After all, this was Kediri in 1965 and 66, which was an extremely active center for PKI mobilization, as well as a major center of NU, uh, which was the religious militia that helped to carry out a lot of the massacres. Thousands of activists on both sides were, in fact, killed during the turmoil of the mid-60s in this locality. Now, the village chief uh, held that the land and his post uh, held on to the land and his post until 1990. In 1989 and 1990, he completed the sale uh, of the disputed land. Most of it was sold to the Ministry of Health for the construction of a community clinic. The remainder was sold to yet another farmer, the third farmer and another defendant in the 2001 case. The court sided with the defendants uh, and issued a decision rejecting the suit in its entirety and ordering the plaintiffs to pay court costs uh, on October 15, 2001. Now, the history of this one parcel of land actually encapsulates a lot of the political struggles and social upheavals of several decades as they played out in the civil adjudication system of rural Indonesia. The plaintiffs lost their land during the high tide of land reform and guided democracy. The village chief took advantage of his position as a political power holder at another tumultuous time a few years later to ensure that he could acquire and retain title to it. He then sold it before retiring to the national government uh, and, and uh, before retiring to the national government and another farmer, actors powerful enough to defend their claims in court relatively easily, even after reformasi. So to give just a very small taste then of civil dispute resolution under new order in the 70s and 80s, uh, on really clear example, I think, of neo-traditional legal regime, in a complicated 1984 case in Kadiri, six siblings sued a man seeking to claim back a plot of farmland they claimed was theirs. Their mother, who had died in 1956, had allegedly held the land since the 1940s. In 1952, um, she had leased it to a man, the father of the defendant in this case, who died in 1970, leaving the land as inheritance to his son. 
1972, one of the plaintiffs alerted the defendant to this issue, uh, who then obtained a formal land certificate of title in his own name in 1975 on the basis of his long-term occupancy and the lack of any registered certificate in his father's landlady's name. Uh, he was then able to present this along with a letter from the village chief uh, saying that he'd always been on the land as long as anyone could remember uh, and brought this to trial. Though the file does not contain any decision documents, another one that runs dry uh, after a certain point, under the principles of the 1960 agrarian law, the land would almost certainly belong to the, legally to the defendant. But in the spirit of the times of early new order, the old landed elite might well have been able to lay claim effectively. Not knowing the exact outcome of this case is frustrating, but it seems significant that the plaintiffs even dared to bring it at all, uh, and that the court did not dismiss it out of hand after the first several hearings. In fact, it went on for at least a year uh, for their gathering of evidence by the court. So if we look then at Manado, and uh, Manado, a naval officer, uh, sued a, an elderly housewife uh, whom he said was illegally squatting on land that he owned on the northern outskirts of the city. As this was still just at the time, uh, 1975, uh, that new order had just coalesced into a powerful and coherent regime. This suit bears some resemblance to many filed in the late 60s, but also some important differences. The officer lacked clear documentation of his ownership claim, yet the defendant had some proof that she'd purchased the property in 1969 and had built the house that stood upon it with profits from her farming of cloves on the land with her children. The court did not have an easy task in sorting through the complex documentation and conflicting testimony presented by each side, uh, who each filed multiple motions and counterclaims, but it was eventually able to rule conclusively in favor of the officer, not very surprising, ordering the old woman to vacate the house and leave the parcel of land at once on pain of heavy daily fines if she failed to do so. Uh, in another very fraught land dispute, also in Manado, uh, a farmer had occupied a parcel of land near the old main road leading out of town in 1961. According to his understanding of the agrarian law, this was a legal occupation of vacant land, uh, though this was not in accord with local officials' understandings of customary law, uh, since the land had never been formally titled and registered previously. Now, the man petitioned to the Land Bureau of Manado City multiple times, and then eventually to the North Sulawesi provincial authorities when he did not get a response. He'd been occupying the land for over a decade, and he had built a shack on it where he lived with his family. He wanted the official legal right to rent or sell the land as well as the shack. But the Provincial Land Bureau denied this in a letter issued to him in June of 1974 stating explicitly that the land had already been allocated for public use according to the city plan as it was offered up for that purpose by the local officials. The court ruled in favor of the government agencies saying it had no authority to overturn executive rulings on land use. The farmer then appealed to the provincial high court in Manado, um, and this court then went even further, threw out the original decision completely on the grounds that the court system does not even have the authority to adjudicate disputes over public land, and it set aside completely both the farmer's claims under the 1960 agrarian law and the understandings of customary law advanced by local authorities, and basically said the court never should have even accepted the case or heard it at all, let alone ruled in one way or another. So hopefully that gives you just some basic flavor of what, what uh, certain parts of the book are about. Essentially, the, the main implications are that the rule of law theories that exist most widely in the literature are both too normative and I think in many cases too teleological, that we kind of assume a one-dimensional, uh, one-directional trajectory leading towards some uh, ideal typical rule of law, 
Alternatives to this, like transitional justice or rule by law, I think are actually pretty narrow, uh, too narrow to encompass the range of variation that we find not just in these two countries, but all over the world. Uh, legal regimes, I think, are a useful conceptual tool across at least cases as diverse as Indonesia and China, probably also further afield. Uh, and if we look then at some other contexts, we can even begin to apply uh, some of these categories to segments of legal systems where we might not expect to find them. Uh, and the fact that we look at, uh, we can look at legal systems in a disaggregated way, for example, urban versus rural, criminal versus civil, I think improves the applicability of these concepts to a broader set of cases, at least potentially. I'll stop there. Sorry to go over time. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Uh, I love in-depth reading into what is really happening in societies. Um, I just had one point and then one question before other people open up. You seem surprised uh, in the period of the Great Leap Forward when you were talking about the cases there that they were still uh, pulling back to pre-49 accusations. I, it, it seems to me though that the way a lot of things operated legally or politically, uh, I mean, look at Liu Xiaoqi's accusations against him, of course, in the Cultural Revolution. And part of the process is that you've always been evil. And so it does, you know, it's not just there's a mistake in the particular case you're talking about, which comes later, but it has to be tied back to the fact that, uh, you know, it shows your bad class character, that maybe you were from this kind of family. So. It doesn't surprise me in that sense that these things, particularly given the political atmosphere during the Great Leap Forward, would be tied back to show, you know, this is a pattern of bad behavior which clearly goes back before and probably goes back to their parents and grandparents and whatever. So I didn't find that quite so surprising. The, the one thing I'd, I'd just ask you for clarification, because this is well beyond my field. I mean, I was interested in your, four, your fourfold categorization the classical rule of law rule and rule by law, those are uh, things which I understand which are frequently within the literature. So my question to you really is, are, are your four categorizations of mobilization and charismatic adding in and the neo-traditional, are they your concepts or are these concepts which are often used when trying to explain different styles of legal systems? And then what is it that you're putting into that that would be new. I like the idea where you're talking about policy context being broad or being narrow, uh, the interference, the non-interference. So that was a really nice matrix of dealing with it. So my question then is, is that, is that what is new in a different way of understanding what have been uh, you know, regular categories for classifying legal systems? Okay, let, let me answer those questions first, if that's yeah. okay, before, before we open it up to more sure, questions. Sure, sure, sure. Is that, uh, just because I'll lose track of them yeah, in my mind otherwise. Um, let me answer those questions in order as well, because I think the first one is in some ways easier to answer than the second one. Right. Um, the first question is basically, as I understand it, about, well, it's not surprising that these things go back to 1949, because mm -hmm. I mean, this has always been the case, even now, actually. Yeah. Uh, you see yeah. things that go back very far in history and you see accusations come out. In fact, I think this is where we want to disaggregate urban and rural areas, right? And so if we look at other scholarship that's been done by others, as well as a lot of what I did on urban areas, urban areas had functioning legal systems and institutions for the most part 
1949 and just thereafter, right? So what happens in urban areas during the early part of the 1950s, through the three antis, the five antis, the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries, all of these early campaigns, is to undermine the functionality of those institutions uh, okay. and to purge from them uh, those many of those officials who have been there, but not all of them. Right? Most of the judges and sort of court clerks and frontline workers are old KMT officials who remain, at least up until the mid to late 1950s. In rural areas, the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries actually results in many contexts in the creation of legal institutions oh. that had not been there before or at least had been completely destroyed or decimated by ongoing civil war and, and occupation. So in most rural areas at the county level, what we're looking at is sort of tabula rasa, at least to some extent in terms of what institutions are there, and through campaigns you see actually a strengthening of institutions, uh, not necessarily what we would consider functioning courts that, that we'd see later, but some kind of uh, adjudication and prosecution institutions during mm. land reform and especially campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries. So given those... Right, and then would that be run then by uh, party officials that would be newly coming in, or is it constituted through, say, village councils that are traditional? This existing? actually gets quite complex. There are okay, well three, <laughs> okay. three at least, if not four, ways that, that adjudication is managed in the countryside at this time. So basically, the, the civil adjudication system pretty much stops, except for family law, uh, almost immediately after 1949. In the countryside, you see um, land reform teams that come out and start to adjudicate and, and put forward land reform cases. And those tend to get handled by mass tribunals or people's tribunals through mass adjudication. And so you get these huge gatherings of people. Everybody puts their thumbprint on a document saying, this person's the evil landlord, kill them, and they get beaten to death at the end of the of the trial but that's all, it's all recorded by the public security bureau as a trial yeah um so that's one system another system is what's called the sifaka mm -hmm. or the the, the uh, uh justice bureau or justice section under the civil affairs bureau um and that that section operates as a more formalized and regularized uh judicial apparatus both for investigation and for adjudication of of criminal cases so you see that, and then later, in some cases after 1952, in just about all cases after 1954 in the Organic Law and People's Courts, the 1954 Constitution, we see actually the introduction of people's courts at the county level, as well as, more slowly, procuratorates. Uh, and so once you get those things coming into place, you can start to see much more sort of formalized institutions right. for prosecution of cases. The reason I find it surprising that in rural areas, all of the cases, by the time you get to the Great Leap Forward, not all, but most of the cases, are actually going back not just to people with bad backgrounds from before 1949, but specifically to the prosecution of misdeeds from before 1949. So most of the people being prosecuted are not alleged to have done something terrible in 1956. They're alleged to have done something terrible in 1940, right, or 1945. Um, the reason I find that surprising is that unlike in urban areas, where elites and others remain somewhat in place. In the countryside during land reform, this all should have been handled, mm. at least in theory, right? So all of these evil bandits and class enemies and, and horrible landlords shouldn't be there anymore, or at least they should have been dealt with during land reform. So the fact that they're the ones who come up again, and if you read the gazetteers and the government documents from the Great Leap Forward, they don't talk about going around and killing old landlords. 
right? They talk about, you know, prosecuting people who have committed crimes during the planned economy. And there's some of that. But if you look at what they're actually accused of, it's usually back to, to 449. Mm. So that's why I find it slightly surprising yeah. in the countryside that that would happen, especially also because it doesn't happen in the city. The people prosecuted in the city at this time and during the Great Leap Forward are almost all accused of things that are much more proximate in time. Uh, to the date of their of their arrest and prosecution, so you know things like uh, wrecking the planned economy in 1956, you might get prosecuted in 1958-59 for that in the city, uh, or the other charge that they love in the city at that time is called fandong uh, biao yu, like re reactionary speech, uh, or something like this. Uh, somebody you know, says something publicly which is against the CCP during say the Hundred Flowers, you get prosecuted for that uh, in 58-59. Uh, but not for, you know, your grandfather was a capitalist in 1900 uh, or something like that. So that's, that, that to me was what made that surprising. Uh, the second question is much broader mm. about sort of where does this conceptual template come from? How do we really draw this out? The reason I like this, this kind of two by two is that each of the dimensions is knowable without recourse into what the outcome is, right? So we can understand where this legal regime comes from without measuring it via some aspect of the legal institutions themselves, right? So we can, we can sort of get out of a, a sort of tautological way or, uh, or, or overdetermined uh, endogenous way of, of, of looking at this uh, and, and sort of step back and see where these constellations of factors come from. So I, I think that's an important uh, step and I think that if we look at it uh, from another angle, uh, this idea of earlier ideas of rule of law are not really based on sort of pluralism and the polity necessarily or formal rationality in the legal system. Uh, they tend to be based on rules that govern the legal system itself within it. So if we look at it that way, there's a slightly different definition of the way rule of law is usually conceived. Um, and if we look at it this way, we see it actually appearing far less often than we might otherwise and far less clearly as the endpoint of a continuum. If we think about rule by law, I think that ultimately this is what rule by law scholars are actually getting at, is a system which functions in a formally rational way, applies its own rules consistently, but which is completely closed politically uh, and, and exclusionary to anybody outside of a very small elite. These other two categories are usually unstudied mm. in most scholarship on legal systems, uh, which is why if you, even if you look at sort of landmark studies of Chinese law from, from the Maoist period, most of them don't really think about it as a formal legal system, uh, especially in criminal law during, say, the Great Leap Forward of the Cultural Revolution. And then dismiss this, this is lawless. It's not lawless, it's actually very systematic, but it's systematic under a legal regime which is different from those that are assumed to exist when we actually get into the, 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 the rules that govern the system itself. Uh, if we think about neo-traditional legal regimes, I think these are actually probably the most common uh, the most common kinds of, of legal regimes we find in most of the world most of the time. And what's also, I think, particularly interesting about them is they frequently tend to exist in hybrid with other legal regimes in the same state. So I didn't really have time to get into this in the talk, but if we think about China today, China today has a rule by law legal regime in its civil adjudication arena, pretty clearly. Or at least it aspires to, and I think it really does. It still has, however, a very clear example of a neo-traditional legal regime in the criminal arena. And, and we, we could talk about why that's true, but this kind of hybrid in different areas of the law, in some other states you can see this in different regions. So for example, you could have a core region of the state uh, which is 
run according to a rule by law system. Uh, and then in some peripheral regions that are harder to govern or where the state cares less about its legitimacy and wants to preserve uh, or places a higher premium on preserving uh, the position of entrenched elites, you might see neo-traditionalism. Uh, in a colonial regime, you might see a rule by law system for the colonizers and a neo-traditional regime applied to the colonized. Uh, so you can find a lot of these hybrids, particularly with neo-traditional regimes and something else. Um, and then as well, if you look at the sort of different components of the legal system, you can find different processes at work in criminal versus civil or urban versus rural. So I think that's, that's kind of where this is new. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really helpful, actually. That, that clarifies a lot for me, at least, anyway. But let's uh, open up. Uh, there's Ken, and then there's Yelling. I try, actually, to avoid... First of all, thank you very much for your question. Thank you for coming. It's, it's a really perceptive and important question. I should say that I try very, very much and very hard to avoid, to the extent I possibly can, talking about where things should be going or the, the, the normative aspect of this, because... I'm not in a position really to presume to say that if only China does X, Y, and Z, it will reach this normatively preferable outcome. Or if only Indonesia had not made this huge mistake in 1966, then there'd be this great... I, I, I'm not really in the business of doing that. What I want to do is understand what's going on in these different kinds of contexts uh, with more uh, flexible and, I think, sharper conceptual tools uh, than are often applied. So I'm trying very deliberately actually to get away from sort of normative value judgments of this is better, this is worse, this is where it should go, this is where it should not. Um, and it, one of the reasons, in fact, I would love to find a better name before I submit this manuscript uh, for that cell that's called classical rule of law or rule of law cell because it is so value-laden and so normatively fraught in almost all the debates. I mean, you can. Cicero, Montesquieu, all these people who talk about you know, the rule of law, not rule by men, and all that. it's very normative. I don't want to be normative. Uh, and so for that reason, I'd like to find a better name for that cell that isn't so convoluted as you know, pluralistic formal rationality. Or something. So it's not something that, that's neat and clear, uh, but doesn't have that kind of normative baggage. So it might be nice to have more normative uh, judgments about it, but, but I don't think I'm ready to go there. I'm a PhD student at the Kennedy School. Um, thanks for a great talk. I love the idea of legal regimes and the idea that societies are, you know, can evolve from one regime to another. I wonder, however, what your thoughts are on what underlying causal variables are driving the evolution of societies from one type to another. And if I could trouble you to go back to the slide where you're classifying, you know, you have the empty cell and then China and Indonesia in each of these. Which one? No, the one after that. So you have China moving from, you know, the Maoist era from charismatic to neo-traditional mm -hmm. to rule by law and Indonesia more or less following that same, well, new order, right? Guided different democracy. Means, yeah. And it's, it's very surprising to me because the political trajectories of t these two countries are so different. You have Indonesia, you have Sukarno, and then Suharto, and then the big break in 98 to democratization and so on. And Actually, then in the China really big break is in 66, not, not in 98. Sure, yeah. yeah. And 
in China, you know, obviously a tremendous amount of change going mm -hmm. on, but essentially in terms of political reform, mm -hmm. you know, relatively less. Mm -hmm. And yet in terms of legal regimes, yeah. what you have here are fairly similar, at least in, in the right. specific areas of um, law that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there? I mean, is, is it something else? And why is it so divorced from political change in, in your... Um, no, it's not divorced from political change at all actually, but it, what I try to do, part of the rationale for comparing these two countries, um, besides the fact that these are the only two countries I can really work on, because um, I don't speak Swahili or, or uh, Urdu or whatever other language, um, but part of the rationale for looking at these two countries uh, is that they are very different in a lot of ways, right? So in the part of the cross-national design is actually a, a, a sort of most different systems uh, design uh, or method of agreement in that if we find the same basic logic animating uh, these two very different countries in terms of their legal regimes, we can say something about the range of applicability of this concept, right? So the basic logic, though, is that political change is absolutely bound up with changing from one type of legal regime to another. You change the constitution of the polity, the, the, the constellation of politically empowered actors, you're going to change a, an important dimension of legal regimes, right? If I can go back to this other more conceptual template, you're moving right to left on this axis, right? If you have sort of the opening of political contestation, right, as happens in a very powerful way from the mid-1950s in Indonesia, you're moving from over here over to here, right? And in China, after about the mid-1970s, late 1970s, you're moving from over here over to here, right? As you get sort of this, this settling of all of these high-stakes political contests that are going on during the Maoist period, right? And the sort of constellation of a stable, uh, very, very hierarchical, very closed political elite after the early 1980s, certainly, and, and increasingly uh, after that. Uh, so in that sense, movement along this right-to-left trajectory on this, this chart is absolutely driven by political change. Movement up and down is driven by how the political system or politically empowered actors decide to interact with the legal system, right? So for example, if we look at Indonesia, what happens in Indonesia in 1998, the is still way over here. There's no real opening of pluralism in 1998. Anyone who looks at it seriously uh, would have to say so. But what does happen, what democratization does do, or at least some level of democratization does do, is it pushes criminal law from the lower end of this formal rational spectrum up towards the top. Because if you're going to claim on any level to be a democracy, you cannot use state coercive power through criminal prosecution at your pleasure to go after all opponents. Right? You have to have this constraint through some kind of formally rational process. Civil adjudication, though, on the other hand, in Indonesia, remains down here in this neo-traditional space. Why? Because you can get away with it. But you can still have companies or wealthy individuals or other elite actors uh, privileged in the civil adjudication realm in a way that is not incompatible with a certain kind of democratization. China, on the other hand, if we look at what happens in China after 1978-79, you see a clear movement from sort of a more contested polity to a more fixed and narrow polity, right? And then at the same time, you see a reprioritization of what the political system is trying to do in a very broad sense. Right? So instead of advancing revolutionary change, progressive change, the political system is now, after 79 or so, 
much more clearly oriented towards social stability and economic development. So what do you have to do then? If you really want to promote economic development, having some kind of rule by law system does things like reduce transaction costs, reduce uncertainty, allows for the development of contracts, which don't really exist before that. And Stanley Lubman has a great article from the 70s on contracts uh, during the 60s. Uh, but contracts are not really a well-developed area of Chinese law until at least the 1980s, if not later. Why? Because if you're in this mobilizational space, you have no idea what's really a contract. How do you enforce this contract? What counts as valid consideration? You have no idea, right? But only after you start to establish these rules and actually run your system in a formally rational way can you have that. And without contracts, you can't have economic development of the sort that China wanted. Um, so all kinds of commercial law, all kinds of laws on companies, all of this is facilitated by moving civil adjudication out of the neo-traditional regime into a rule-by-law regime. But China has absolutely zero intention of opening its polity or of ceasing to use the criminal prosecution system for suppression of any potential regime opponents. So if we look right from the beginning, what do we see at the same time as the introduction of the civil code? On the criminal side, we see the first Yenda campaign, right? And these Yenda committees, these strike hard committees, are constituted at every local level to supersede every formal legal rule and to suppress regime opponents. And then we see several waves of strike hard throughout the 1980s. Into the 1990s, then we see this expansion in a more formal way of what are called the adjudication committees inside courts, right? These Xianpan Wei Yunhui. And the, the adjudication committees deal, according to every piece of research, both my own and, and others, uh, Ben Liebman at Columbia has written a very nice piece on this, as have several others, with criminal cases, not with civil. Right? So all of these ways of, and Ji Jianwei comes in there as well. Uh, if we think about Ji Jianwei and the role of Zheng Fawei in a lot of these cases, it's all criminal. Right? So what China has done is it's moved its civil adjudication into the rule by law area in order to promote economic development, but kept criminal adjudication down there. I don't know, does that sort of speak to your question? Is, that, is it still unclear how it? No? Sir? Hi, Sarah Newland. I'm a postdoc at the Ash Center. Um, so I guess this is a follow-up maybe on Yaling's question, um, which is that I'm wondering about the sort of broader utility of these categories. Um, so do you see these as purely descriptive categories where these are sort of a, a new set of ways when one is trying to analyze a legal system or a subset of a legal system um, to try to, you know, sort of think about how it compares to others. Uh, do you think about these as having explanatory value for some other out set of outcomes that what we might be interested in? What do you mean by explanatory value? So does falling into one box versus another predict some set of outcomes that we might be interested in as political scientists? I guess I'm trying to, to get a sense of like what, what kind of analytical leverage you think these categories right. give. Because the constellation of a legal system is not a good outcome to be studying. Um, so I guess I, I, I guess that's sort of my question, right? Is 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 this the end point that you you know that for legal scholars, just having a broader set of categories is itself something that um, you see as you know that that's mm -hmm. the value of this project, or does it um, help explain something else down the road? I guess. Well, I mean, obviously, explaining things up to point A may have some utility for explaining what happens at B, C, and D. Uh, what I'm really more interested in here is how do we get to A, right? So how do we get to these different kinds of political uh, orders or, or uh, legal regimes 
uh, in different kinds of areas of the law in different sorts of states. And I think that's, that is some step forward uh, in terms of, you know, does being in this box predict some other aspect of political outcomes? Not so much because, or at least I don't, I don't know. It might, um, but I'm not interested in that kind of prediction. One can't really make predictions very well in, in social science, uh, as we all know. Uh, but being in that box doesn't necessarily mean that some other aspect of politics will look different in particular ways because other aspects of politics are how I've measured being in that box. Right? So I'm more interested in what the legal system looks like and how legal institutions are working than in what that aspect of, of how the law functions says about some other aspect uh, of things. So yes, it is mostly descriptive in that sense, but what, what is to be explained then is how different contexts shape the way those institutions actually get into one cell or the other and what the dynamics actually look like on the ground. Does that make sense? Um, so I'm not interested in saying, okay, you're in the neo-traditional space, therefore you've got a democracy or not. No. Because I, I think all of these are compatible with every kind of basic political regime, however you want to categorize it. I mean, you could, you could take, I suspect, uh, various aspects of, say, American law at different times and in different regions and port them into some of these boxes. And I, mean, I think certainly the United States envisions itself as being a rule of law country, right? equal justice under law and all this other stuff. And, um, is that true in, say, late 19th, 30th, 20th century Georgia? Probably not. We're probably in the neo-traditional region. Is it true in early 20th century New York? Maybe, but maybe we're actually in the rule by law regime, especially when it comes to uh, uh, civil adjudication. I don't really know. I don't study the United States at all. But I think we might be able to start putting other countries and, and contexts into some of these boxes in ways that may have some uh, useful application as well. We have one last comment from Edward. This is, this is the microphone. This is, so, so Edward Cunningham worked here at the SM. I'm more political economy, but just, just a one quick follow-up to Sarah's question. I mean, really, what you're saying is, I think you're, you're, you're move, you are definitely moving away from sort of the typical sort of poli-sci type approach, whether it's, it's in, in what the, is in that? The though? Well, in the sense of the, the, the current, the, the modern sort of predictive that type of approach, in my mind, and, and I think you mean the 1960s your, and behavior, not, <laughs> and you're not, yeah. And you're, but you're, what you're not really doing, which I think is probably with the typical, I, I would, I would assume, I would say that sort of most political science will look and say, well, what we really want to figure out is the, is the relationship between really these two um, uh, vectors, right? Whether, to what extent there's basically an independent legal institution, right? And to what extent the polity is contested versus narrowed, right? But this is, this is and this is not a criticism, just that, that that's sort of, you're, you're less interested in that. In, in, in explaining that relationship, I don't think there's necessarily a relationship. I don't think there's necessarily a relationship. No, I think uh, I'm, I'm not looking at one of these as the, the independent variable and the other as the dependent variable. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, because uh, I do not think that necessarily if you have a fixed or closed polity, you're going to have formally rational or no. No, not at all. Um, so what moves things between these different cells are these more complicated political processes and sort of historical contingencies that we can get into in each case. Um, what defines which cell they're in are these two basic dimensions. But there's no causal relationship implied between the two dimensions. That's true. Okay, so please join me in thanking Professor Hurst for this presentation.